0: You two behave. <laughs> Hi everybody, my name's Larry Thomas and I'm an alcoholic. Is there anybody we haven't thanked here? Okay. If you're feeling suicidal, get a hold of Dean later, he'll read you the rest of the report. And that ought about finish the deal for you, you you know. I want to thank Dean for cutting his talk so short. It's the first time we've ever gotten anybody from New York to do what we wanted them to do. Uh, uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be out of my room. Uh, I, uh, I want to thank my lovely wife for putting up with me for a couple days here. And uh, joining me on this trip, I want to thank uh, I, maybe there is some more people to thank as it <laughs> Let me get out of my list here you know and uh, you know, uh, Kevin for picking us up uh, and uh, certainly, I want to thank uh, Chris and Debbie for hosting us this weekend and bringing us into their home, so I didn 't have to stay at this dingy dorm you got here so uh, <laughs> but uh not that it was a bad dorm, but um, I tell you, you can always tell if AA is working in someone's home by the smile on their child's face. And I met their kid, Davis, and I tell you, that kid Beams. I tell you, it, it was a happy experience for me. I, I got to talk to somebody who understands me. Laughter um, <laughs> I uh, just, uh, you know, busy little head, and uh, we damn near didn't make it across the border, you know. Uh, Kevin picked us up, and that scared him off, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so the, uh, the guy at the border says, uh, you know, we had to show him our passports. And he says, uh, where are you from, you know, and we, Los Angeles. He says, what's your nature of business? And Kevin says, well, he's friends of mine. And the guy says, well, where did you meet him? And Kevin says, well, we've just known him a while. And the guy says, well, how did you meet him? You know? And Kevin looks at me like, what do I tell him? You know what I mean? I says, just tell him where we're going, goof. You're running into my time. you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he says, well, we're going to an AA conference, and, and he's our speaker. And he goes, oh. He says, uh, what are you bringing over? And I go, well, I got my wife, you know. And he said, "No." know, he says, what are you bringing here? And I, I said, well, my experience, for God's sake, you know. And, All right, get through here, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm really glad to be here with you guys. I tell you, uh, when I sat in uh, Peter and Debbie's meeting this afternoon at 3 o'clock, I knew I was in the midst of a loving God. No safer place to be if you be alcoholic. You want to hear God, you want to be with God, you want to feel God. You put me in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where they're talking about the solution and there is not a finer place for me to be. I tell you, uh, my sponsor tells me that I'm living proof that a man can stay sober for a little over 28 years and not amount to a damn thing. So uh, (laughs) I... (laughs) So, I am, I got a busy head, I really do. I got a head that loves to chat, you know. There is no problem too small to baffle the mind of this alcoholic, you know. And I just love to think, you know. And I love to, you know, I give it away all day and then at night I just see how he did with everything, you know what I mean. And I love to worry because it makes me feel like I've got something to live for, (laughs) you know. And uh, you know we were uh, we were over at Debbie and Chris's, and uh, that storm hit, you know. That always worries me, you know, and uh, it hit real hard, and, I, and we're down in the basement. Thank you for that. You know? <laughs> but no, they got a beautiful room down there, and every now and then they come by and look through the hole, you know <laughs> Got some visitors, Larry. Kevin wants to take you to to Dermaton, you know. uh, Yeah, yeah, you know. So, uh, beautiful home. We had a great time. And so that rain hits, and I start, you know, Jesus, what's all this thunder and stuff, you know. And then I, you know, I start worrying, you know. And I start thinking about my house. And I started thinking, you know, if you had a swimming pool, you know, where does that water go, you know. And what happens if that swimming pool, yeah, what happens if that swimming pool cracks, you know, where does that water go? Does it flood into my neighbor's house and get her all wild-eyed about me again, you know? Or does it go underneath the house? And is it going underneath the pool? Is it going to crack that pool? Where's that water going, you know? Now, I don't own a pool, you know. <laughs> I was thinking about getting one, you know, but I'll think about it some more, for God's sakes, you know. So, uh, I've got that busy head, and, and I got the type of, uh, uh, I'm geared this way that no matter how tired I am, uh, the more my head wants to chat. You know, I'm thinking I could wear it out, you know. Two o'clock in the morning, boy, that old head. Hey, Larry, let's chat. I know you're in there, you know. Let's talk about when you're a baby and bring you right up to date, for God's sake, you know. You know, and the frustrating part about that is we just did it the night before, you know. they don't care, you know. Come on, man, we're taking you through it again, you know. And uh, come, you know, I, uh, I've had a great family. I, uh, you know, uh, I was. Um, I'm a loser. Is what I am, you know. There's no excuse for me being here. Uh, I mean, really, I am a loser. I'm a hostile loser. And when you're a loser like me, when you're growing up. Physically, uh, people are always bringing people to your side to compare you to, you know. Why don't you be like Bobby? He seems to be doing good, you know. And, and I was like that in high school, you know. I'm a goofy little freshman, you know, and I get uh, nailed in high school for being drunk. And I'm in the principal's office with my dad. And my dad looks up at the side of the, of the gym in the, in the room in the principal's office, and he sees this picture of Koi, old number seven. Star quarterback. And the old man gives me the nudge. Jesus, jackass, why don't you try to be like Coy, you know? Look at him, man. Star quarterback, you know? And I said, all right, I'll give it a shot, you know? (laughs) The next year I'm being arrested for being drunk on campus and loaded on barbiturates, and I stole the janitor's cart and I drove it through the library door, you know? I had to get that book back, you know? (laughs) And so, you know, me and my dad and my probation officer are sitting in the principal's office, you know, and probation officer looks on the wall and he sees a star quarterback. He says, Jesus, Larry, he says, why don't you try to be like Coy? You know, that guy seems to be doing pretty good. And I says, all right, I'll give it a shot. My junior year, my big sister starts dating some guy, and she brings him over. It's old number seven, right there, you know, <laughs> right on my couch, you know. My mom comes running over in her moo-moo, you know, why don't you try to be like Cory for God's sakes, you know. and I said, all right, I'll give it a shot, <laughs> you know. My senior year, I'm in the Torrance Jail getting ready to do 90 days, and the newspaper comes sliding through there, and it says that old Coy makes all pro-CIF, you know. And I said, my God, I want to be like that guy, you know. And lo and behold, what happens? I'm five years sober in A and A, and I'm, and uh, you know they're they're saying what goes around comes around, right? And I'm in my little plumbing truck, you know, and and uh, I've got the window rolled up. Well, actually, it's cardboard, <laughs> you know. <laughs> thing, things are going good for me, you know, and uh, and it's pretty vogue in L.A. that on every street corner they've got these guys selling oranges or peanuts. Or they have this cardboard sign that says, "I'll work for food," like you don't. You know what I mean? And, uh, I don't know. You know. And I look like a guy that needs help. You know, I've got everybody's giving me pamphlets about Jesus and Jehovah, and all these J guys coming to town, and I, I better go see them. You know what I mean? And I'm sitting in my plumbing truck, you know, and I and I lock eyes with this guy, and I go. Oh, you know, I got two bucks and he ain't getting it, you know. I, he's over there holding this sign and he looks at me and he comes running over and he sticks his head through my truck and he goes, Larry, Larry Thomas. And I go, Coy, it's all, go out for a long one, you son of a bitch, you know. Well, you know. I said, my God, I thought this guy had it made, you know what I mean? And then it dawned on me that if there was any real justice here in AA, then maybe Old Dean could write this guy a letter saying, "Why can't you be like Larry?" You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's been the nature of my dilemma. Is you know, and I was you know, I come from a great home, and nothing wrong with them. Uh, I was born in Detroit. I was a little, little city off there, Pontiac, in St. Joseph Hospital. And we got some refugees from there too, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, my mom said we, you know, we moved around a lot, you know, and I understand that because they weren't together a lot. And my mom's a little Scandinavian lady and, uh, we moved out to L.A. after a while. Um, when I was about four years old and they put me in a little foster home. And my mom's a neat Scandinavian lady, you know. And uh, my mom was always eating diet pills and running around the house, you know, around four o'clock in the morning, you know, sorting out nuts and bolts in the garage all night, you know. (laughs) Waking the neighbor's yard around three o'clock in the morning. Hey, you better go get the rake, eh? You know, and uh, just a busy lady and she loved to eat that speed and make Afghans. And so, you know... (laughs) Everything in the house had a fresh afghan on it, you know Chairs had afghans, couches had afghans, my dad's golf clubs had a little poodle head, you know If there was any animals, they had a fresh vest on, you know And and the house was small and you can hear her in the next room just Just going to town, you know, And uh, and no matter what time you got up she was up doing shit, you know Cleaning stuff with your toothbrush, you know, and just a busy lady, you know, and and, and she, she had a lot of hobbies. Sometimes do them all at the same time, you know, and I had no idea it was my first tweaker I'd ever seen, you know, and she loved to eat that speed and, and go down, and she used to love to make these big jigsaw puzzles, these 30 million piece jigsaw puzzles, you know, of the Mojave Desert, you know. Going to be a beige night tonight, Sonny, you know, I mean, and, She'd run down to save on, get her a carton of Raleigh cigarettes, because she saved the coupons on the back to buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in, man, you know. And she would come home and put her one and only muumuu on she had for 45 years, you know, put this stinky peroxide on her hair, you know, eat some more speed. Start making this big jigsaw puzzle, and if she got a piece that didn't fit, well, she had a big pair of toenail clippers, and she just snipped the shit out of that. You know, wedge that baby right in there. You know. Just and you know, when you grow up with a lady that determined, there's a there's a lot of rules going on there that you just don't quite understand. You know, a lot of mom laws going on. You know, don't play in the gutter; you're going to get polio. You know that for a fact, huh, Mom? You know you got a lot of gimps running. I mean, you know, you know that, you know. And the other one was burnt food is good for your gums. Well, yeah, you know. She'd get three things going, something catch on fire, you know. I'm getting ready to go to school. She slides this plate of fire under there, you know. I'm looking at it at four in the morning, you know. And I make a mad, you know. She, don't you make, don't you give me that face, you son of, a, you know. That burnt food is good for your gums, you know. Now, she don't have a tooth in her head. God damn it. You know. So, I didn't want to stick around the house that much, you know. I mean, whatever I could to get out of that house, I was all for. I was into staying at your house, playing Little League, playing midnight football, doing anything, you know what I mean. Now, my dad was a happy drunk. My dad was a happy, singing the blues, Nat King Cole, Bobby Darin drunk. He just loved to drink and sneak into his own damn house. It was an amazing thing, you know. And he's coming through my bedroom window. Got these big refinery boots, sneaking in there. Got that boot stepping on my chest around 3 in the morning, you know. And I grabbed that boot one night. I says, Dad, I says, why don't you have Mom make you a set of keys for God's sake, you know. I mean, she's up anyway, you know. I can hear the Hoover going now, Dad, you know. Or shut up, and you know and and my dad wanted nothing but the best for me now, let me tell you i i i i I love my dad and I still love my mom, but there was so much confusion between them that i did, I couldn't trust him, and I was afraid to and i and I wanted to please him, but there were so many things that i I wanted to ask him, but I was so confused and I felt ashamed for being confused. You see? And one thing about my mom, make make no mistake about this. I knew my mom loved me at an early age. I, I, no, no, no. I am not lacking love. But it's because they loved me that drove me mad. It's because they loved me that I knew I didn't have the power to stop drinking. I would love to say, oh, we love you, and you stop for their love. That drove me absolutely nuts. And I never want to forget what it's like to be a young man. 17, 18, 19 years old, something like that. And I'm put away for a small period of time and I come out of there. And I'm supposed to be home and I don't come home. I don't come home for two or three days. But when I do show up, I don't show up at home. No, I show up on an April morning with the rain hitting me. At my mom's place of business I'm in the parking lot of a dry cleaners with all my drunken mud on and my mom's from about here to the back of that wall and I'm staring at her in that rain and the only thought I have is she better have a buck she better have a buck and I walk through that rain and I go into that lady's place of business and one more time I startle her with my presence which would be an ongoing thing. And I ask her for that buck. And she breaks out that little Woolworth wallet of hers. And a picture of me falls out when I'm about eight years old, the only decent picture she ever had of me when I'm on a Little League team. And she gives me that $1 and then $2, and I take that money and I run off to Wilmington where I'm going to die. Now, the thing that brings it home to me, if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I never want to forget this, is you take this same man and you bring him to Alcoholics Anonymous with my so-called desperation and willing to go to any length. And you stick me in a meeting like you have here, where every action I take my life depends on. And you put me in an atmosphere of grace and sobriety. And I need to ask you something. How come when my life depends on it, and you have the secretary of this meeting that same distance as me and my mom, How come when my life depends on it, I can't walk that same distance and ask a man for a job in a meeting that's going to save my life. But I can walk that distance and use my mom and other people like that time and time and time and time and time again. And I'm here to share with you, if you're new, that if my alcoholism doesn't kill me, my selfishness and my self-centeredness will make no mistake about that. Which is why it's necessary for a man with a little over 28 years To still be close to and active in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous and even more so a home group. You see, I will never get so sober that I can't get drunk again. There is no place for the alcoholic of my type where we can just kick back and rest on our laurels. I will never get so sober that I can't get drunk again, but I can get so drunk that I can't make it back again. And I never want to forget what it's like to be outside your meeting halls, year after year after year, staring in through there and wondering, will I ever have a piece of this thing? Will I ever be in the middle of this thing? Or will I always be on the outside like I did my entire life, watching life go by me like a train, and wondering how do you jump on that thing? You see, I've got to be busy with you. I can't just be a guest. I need to be an active member. You know, and I never want to forget that now, like I said, uh, I'm eleven years old, and, and uh, people around me are grasping and develop manners of living, and they seem to be growing along normal little lives. I'm starting to grow up, and I for some reason, after about eleven or twelve years old, I just woke up and I had this tremendous amount of fear and resistance to anything good and decent. Up to that point, whatever the old man said, I would do. And now I've got this little resistance. Now I'm a little bit restless and irritable and discontented. Now I'm confused and I don't know who to take that to. Now I don't trust the people that I'm living with that I should be loving. And why am I not grateful for everything that I, that I have in that little home? Why, why am I always full of this little restlessness and irritable and feeling discontent? Why is there this, this confusion about me? And everybody seems to be doing things on the norm and, and I, can, I can do the physical things that everybody are doing, but there seems to be some unfinished business on the inside and I don't know what that is. And at about 11 years old, there was four of us and I took a shot of four-rose whiskey and the business was settled. It took away the confusion. It took away the doubt. And it evened out the playing field for the worst, first time in my life. And the simple satisfactions that kids were getting out of doing good and having good grades and hitting home runs, I got that same satisfaction out of three fingers of four-rows whiskey. Now, I, you know, I didn't, you know, head out to Skid Row every day and lose my paper out and come to AA, you know. But I never forgot that place you took me to. I never laughed so hard in my life. I never threw up so much in my life. I got dizzy. I, I... I was going after my first Latin woman to get a kiss from her, and it was my aunt. <laughs> you, know, and it, you know, that makes old Uncle Jack a little nervous to have you around, you know. Where is he? You know, and the, all I knew is that I visited a place that I knew whenever I would be restless or irritable or discontented, or in my, in my, uh, in my life, would have to face any form of responsibility that always made me thirsty i knew that i could run off into the old man's garage and find some thunderbird i knew he had that santa fe port in there and i chased it i chased it as often as a little kid would get and by the time i got into high school i'm about 13 years old or something like that and I'm spending more time outside than I am supposed to be doing. And I run across these guys in a garage, and they're they're working on a dragster. And I feel the laughter, and I hear these guys laughing and working with tools and starting up this engine that just was so loud it quieted my head. And I started hanging around this garage, and I started chasing tools for these guys. And they were giving me sips off their beer, and after a while they took me to the races with them. And I would be part of their pit crew and I would get them tires and stuff like that. And I felt a part of this little clan of guys, you know. And my dad started seeing me make this right turn. And I know that, you know, he wanted me to go to school and stuff like that. And I become preoccupied with these guys. And by the time I'm a freshman in high school, kids are going to their lockers to get their books. And I'm going to my lockers to take some barbiturates to take away the shakes that I'm having. And I start dating this little Mexican girl, and uh, and she had some brothers, and her brothers like cars, and over in California they like lowered cars. They used to lower their Chevys down to the ground. You right? Get their hair up real big like a Bakersfield tumbleweed. You know. <laughs> Drive around, listen to the Four Tops, the Temptations, the O.J.'s, Marvin Gaye. God, I loved it, man. I was in my plumbing truck the other day, and the four tops came up. I just started sinking in my damn truck. I loved it, man. I had these white T-shirts and black khaki pants that came up to here. Women were telling me that men who are well-endowed had big feet. I had a pair of 15-inch shoes I was riding around in. Got my big hair and my big feet and my big frown, wondering, what the hell are you looking at, you know? Somebody tripped over my foot tonight, and I felt proud. Let me move that thing for you, ma'am, you know. Oh, I loved it, man. I loved it. I had a little Mexican girlfriend. Her hair was all big. She used to curl her hair with these soup cans, and the noodles were stuck in there, you know. We'd drive around with our frowns, wondering what the hell is everybody looking at, you know. Oh, I loved it. drive into the -the jack-in-the-box, you know, and she says, uh, Drive into the -the jack-in-the-box and talk to the puppet, Weddle. You know, I can't see the puppet, you know. Drive up there and give me a hamburger, man. You know, I drive, I'm loaded on that 151 rum, you know. So I'm I'm hearing about five puppets, you know. I'm trying to look for that menu. I drive into the jack-in-the-box, you know, and I run over the damn puppet. His head's hanging down like that, you know. He's still yelling at me, can I have your order, please, you know. The, the cops come. They throw me on the hood of the car. They shatter my hair all over the place, you know. I don't drive till I'm 30. Big deal. Let Rudy drive. And there's nothing like riding shotgun. Let Rudy drive all night. And it was riding shotgun, man, that I could drink that wine all night and and make the most magnificent discovery an Alki can ever discover, and that is how good you look in that mirror. <laughs> uh, I look at myself in that mirror and go, my God, are you good looking. You ought to be an underwear model or something, you know. You, you don't wear any, but what the hell, you know. And uh, and the more wine you drink, the bigger your hair gets, you know. And you look at yourself, my God, are you something, you know? You're 120 pounds, you can't lick a stamp, you know? <laughs> my arms are about as big as this post, you know, and I, I hang them out that car door and press them against that big car door to make them look big so you don't mess with me, you know what I mean? Driving around like that. What up, man? What are they, you know? <laughs> Oh, I loved it, man. I ran into a kid like that not too long ago. I'm in the Glendale Mall in California. This kid goes walking by me. He's about 19 years old. His head's all shaved bald. He's got his mom's earrings on. He's got a, he's got a ring in his eye. He's got a ball bearing in his nose. He's got a ball bearing in his tongue. He's got another ring in his lip. got a chain to his wallet. I walk by me and he goes, well, what are you looking at? I says, I haven't a clue what I'm looking at, you know. I, I wanted to squirt him with some WD-40 to make sure he keeps moving on, you know what I mean? Get out of here, you little, you know. And uh, You ever see those big holes they put in their ears, you know? It, just so you don't lose them, you can just hook your finger in there, you know. I think they ought to make rims for those, you know what I mean? They put some spinners in there, you know put a clock in there. I don't care, you know. So uh, me and the kids started talking and laughing and and now I sponsor them. uh, (laughs) What do you want me to do? I said, well, why don't you unlock yourself for God's sake, you know. Well, I go to these darn meetings and I feel so different. Really? I said, maybe you're the only one locked up in a chain link fence. How about that, you know. I had some guy come up to me today, some guy had a suit on and some big earrings on. He says, boy, these suits aren't made for men to wear. I says, I know, but those earrings are, you know. What the hell is coming on here, you know. Oh, I loved it, man. I loved it, man. Nothing about driving around like that. Seeing yourself in that mirror, you got 40 pounds of puke on your chest, you know, and that's when I start feeling like I need to go dancing, you know. Let's go find that salsa queen, you know. Oh, I loved it, loved every bit about it, man. Around 1969, a bunch of us start uh, start going different places, some to Vietnam and some different places, and I thought I'd take my buddy and uh, come out to Detroit and find my roots. And I wound up in Phoenix. And, uh, and I'm over there off of North Central and Roosevelt at the Apache Hotel. It's about six floors up. Everybody has a bathroom. It's down the hall. Everybody's got a TV. It's in the lobby. It's about 30 bucks a month, and I can't get up the, the dough to get that. And I got a little room with a little Murphy bed and a little window. And I drink and I dream and I die. And my best friend is across the street at the Wagon Wheel Bar, where there is no windows, just a dirty old purple curtain with holes in it. And that's where I was to go to live. I love these stories we hear about alcoholism. Our experience, strength, and hope. And I've come to believe for me and people like me, I believe that all we're telling you is our search for peace of mind. The alcoholic search for peace of mind the lengths he would do just to find that peace, just to find that quiet spot where there's no nightmares, just to find that spot where you can lay your head and know that nobody's going to get you tonight. And I had no idea that by the time I come to Alcoholics Anonymous that the peace of mind that I thought I had was all an illusion, that it wasn't really happening. And that all these things we hear happen in Alcoholics Anonymous, how that, how that drink shut off our head and quieted our gut and put us here and did all that. I had no idea that that wasn't really happening. That to everybody that drinks, that doesn't happen to. And that to me and you, it was just an illusion. And the persistence of that illusion is astonishing. How we sell out on the idea that an illusionary peace of mind is more real than the peace of mind we can't find when we're sober. And to the alcoholic of my type, it seems that sobriety seems to drive me to drink time and time and time again. I can't stand the way that I feel when I'm sober. And the people that I'm introducing into these innocent lives of my parents, I never want to forget. These people were... dangerously naive to what goes on in that world. They were just hard-working people. And by the time I was 14, I was starting to introduce them into a level of life that they never imagined existed. And I would traipse it in front of them and in their house. And they had no idea what was going on with me. That I would introduce them into a life that they couldn't imagine was really out there and the filth, and the disgust, and the perversion, and the sickness that I would traipse across them trying to convince them that everything's all right. And then the thoughts that had to be going through their head, as I see Chris and Debbie looking at their child, what in God's name is going on? And that my alcoholic life become the normal one. It was one that I was selling out every time I could just for one more shot of that peace of mind that I thought I was getting. And I'm over in Phoenix, and I'm over at the Don Hotel. And I don't know what I'm going to do for work or anything, so I go down to the Wagon Wheel bar and I meet a guy named Ernie. Ernie's from Tennessee. Ernie says, I know what we're going to do with you, Larry. Show up here tomorrow. He says, i got a guy that's a plumber. He'll help us out. And I showed up the next morning and I met this plumber. He says, Yeah, I'll put you to work. And he stuck me underneath the house. He says, You stay under there. All I want you to do is hang copper all day. And he gave me a transistor radio. And he left me. And he says, I'll come back in nine hours and get you. And I'm under there and I got this transistor radio. I got a pint of Kessler's. I got this stray cat staring at me over there. And it dawned on me, man, I'm on top of the world. I got a mate under here, man. I got a transistor. I got a pint. I got a pet. You know, all i got to do is bang on this pipe every now and then and let them think I'm busy, you know. I said, man, I need some hot bourbon. Started drinking that bourbon. Nine hours later, they're dragging me out from underneath that house. It seemed I'd got drunk and busted up through the floor, robbed that lady of her money and her jewelry. They're dragging me out. This cat comes running out with a bunch of necklaces, you know. (laughs) Fired me from that job. Come back there a couple days later. Talk to Ernie again Ernie says I know what we're going to do Larry he says not too far from here is a horse track he says we're going to get you down to 95 pounds you're going to be a jockey <laughs> and I was excited I thought we were going to start working out and stuff and he gave me a bag of speed and I looked at him no man I don't do that I've just been drinking and doing heroin minding my own you know, business you know I don't, <laughs> I don't need any hep you know what I mean no, 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 I just want you to take this stuff and two months later I'll come weigh you in, you know. Well, he was down to 105, so he was sure it was going to be working, you know. And I don't know what happened, but he took off and he left me with that stuff. And two weeks later he comes back and I haven't moved an inch. I'm just, you know, I don't want to be a ready, I'm going faster than any damn horse I've ever seen in my life, you know. And I, I'm in this little room just going around and around chasing a fly and looking out my little blinds every ten seconds, you know, because I hear these voices out there and I'm What's that? What's that? What's that? You know, and I see these black and white flashes and that's the damn sun going up and down, you know. <laughs> Worst 16 days of my life, you know. So we come back and uh, I got another job with another plumber and I worked for the guy for an hour and a half and uh, find out that he was younger than me. And I'm not working for a kid. So I did what any honorable man would do. I faked a knee injury. Went down to the county hospital, and uh, they gave me a prescription for Percodan. And the doctor left, uh, gave me, a, he left a box of prescription pads, and he took off. And I knew he didn't want to use them anymore, you know. I, uh, don't waste it, there's kids starving in Europe, you know, and, uh, you know. I, so uh, I borrowed some and uh, and I started writing prescriptions and me and Ernie at the bar we met these guys in Tucson, California and I started writing prescriptions to these guys, these little Mexican doctors and just writing prescriptions for Xanax and Nembutal and all, you name it all. I wrote it all. I just you know, I damn near took it all too, you know, and I after about nine months, you know, uh, you know, they caught up with me. And when you're loaded on whiskey and barbiturates, there's no freeway chase, you know. There he goes down to 17. You know, none of that happens. You know, it's just a matter of the sheriff coming into the old Busy Bee Hotel, going, "There he is under there." You know. <laughs> so they uh, they convicted me and put me away in a little place. And I'm no big time convict, don't, you know. I'm just a little loser. And they locked me up for a small period of time, and I got out there. And I, 1974, I come back to California, and I go to the city hall, and I register there, and they put me on abuse And I'm on two months of abuse and uh, I go through some agency, and I, I don't have a driver's license, so I'm taking buses everywhere and hitchhiking and stuff, and I finally get a job as a laborer. I'd tell you, I am a guy who doesn't suffer from people giving me breaks. People have been giving me breaks my entire life, and one of them was the guy that I resented, and that was my dad. Now, my dad was a refiner. Re- my dad had a, a miraculous thing about him, a characteristic that I don't have. He used to be able to start things and finish them. <laughs> Called a hard worker. Not me. I'm an alcoholic. And I also have another problem. I have a five inch belt of lazy ass that straps around here where, you know, the only thing I think about when I get up is, when's my nap? You know? And, uh, and so I went, and my dad went out on the limb. His, his best friend, his, our neighbor was in charge of the fire department of this refinery. And my dad went over there and talked to him and said, why don't you give the kid a chance? And the guy put his name on an application. And all I was going to do was, uh, be a laborer in a refinery and shovel stuff and i was supposed to show up and i showed up 3 hours early and the you know the refinery uh, window was closed so i went to a a little league field and i went into a dugout and an hour went by and 2 hours went by and at about the 3rd hour i slipped into a place between maniacal and hysterical the cord was plugged I went into a a catatonic state, and my paranoia was so bad that I was locked into hallucinations. And I'm two months without drinking and having anything in me, and I don't know what's going on. And people tell me that somebody called the paramedics. And this time I know I pulled the coronary, no coming back, because I'm in a place that I've never imagined that I would ever get out of. And it was so frightening that they took me to the Harbor General Hospital, They looked at my jacket and they looked at some of the things that was going on in my life and they said, I think we need to take you to a state hospital for you to be observed for 30 or 60 days, son. And they took me to the state hospital and a year later I came out totally observed. (laughs) (laughs) And they gave me my medication and they gave me things that took care of some of these problems. But I tell you what, you can't medicate away. This time it's going to be different. My friends, I'm an alcoholic. I'm the type of alcoholic that the memory of my last drunk, no matter how bad, does not have sufficient force to keep me sober. I'm the type of alcoholic that every time I drink, I can look and I get sober. I can look over the 20 years of drinking and I can see every face of every person that I've ran over and used and abused. I'm the type of alcoholic that every time I'm sober, I can see the physical things going on with this young body. I can see the things that are happening to me and the way that I look and the sores and the stuff that's going on with me. I can see all that. I am the type of alcoholic that I know the threats of the institutions that lie ahead of me if I'm caught one more time. Yet I'm an alcoholic. And the longer I stay sober... The memory of my last drunk is pushed aside and all that knowledge of those things are pushed aside for this idea that maybe this time it's going to be different. And it doesn't come to me in those words. It comes into me, screw it. I can't handle it no more. I'm not drinking now and people around me are telling me, Larry, if you stop drinking, everything will be alright. And I stop drinking and I'm not alright. And I get a little bit restless. Restless. And I get a little bit irritated. And I get so tense. And I come to these meetings. And I see these guys with these ties on. And they say stuff like, 30 days ago, I was on the streets of Los Angeles. Now I'm the president of the Bank of America. Thank you. You know, I'm uh, <laughs> My God, I came in with that guy. I am the type of alcoholic that that book talks about. That after days, weeks, or months of sobriety, the thought will come, that I've got to drink again, that I don't have sufficient force to keep me sober, and that knowledge of what's going on with me is all pushed aside for this idea that maybe this time it's going to be different. And my sobriety and my and my, and my my drinking all feel the same, and I wind up staying drunk as long as I can and sober as long as I can, and my life is just a period of fresh starts, and I'm always one more time going on a spree. And I don't know what's going on with me. And the thing that people are telling me to stop doing is the only thing that ever gave me peace. And now it's turning its ugly head on me. And I'm thinking, man, don't do that now. You're the only hope that I have. Maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe I'll sneak up on it a little bit. Maybe when I start feeling numb and stuff, then I'll slow down. But you see, I don't need any drugs to make sure that my drunk goes on. I have a thing called the phenomenon of craving that kicks in. That after two or three drunks, I'm off and running. And I don't care anymore. And I wind up with these sprees and winding up with these places and going how did this happen? You know? And I don't know how to stop it. And they come out of there a year later, and like I say, they gave me those things. And uh, in 1974, I run out of Thorazine. And I'm over at a. I've been out for two months, and they find me at a, a, a Street in downtown Los Angeles. They find me at a, at a Chevron gas station, curled up behind a gas station, a public nuisance. No big time drunk. No big time. A public nuisance, a violation, and they roll me up one time again, and they send me up the wayside, and I'm up at the wayside county ranch. And after 30 days, they put about 50 of us in a black-and-white bus or I'm going to be taken down to the South Bay courthouse and sentenced to two, three years in the penitentiary. And I'm in a holding tank about this size. And there's nothing but I'm on a concrete floor with my Vaughn's bag and no hope. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, everybody's gone. All the buses are gone. All the other guys are gone. And I'm sitting in this holding tank wondering where they're going to send me now because they're always sending me someplace. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, a Scottish man with a patch rolled open a, a green door, and he says, "Hi, lad." He says, "My name is La-. he says My name is Alex." He says, "Are you Larry Thomas?" And I said, "Yes, sir, I am." He says, "Come with me, son. You're going to AA." And I thought to myself, "My God, what's that? I've heard of O.R. and P.O., but what's AA? You know and <laughs> And who's the Scottish pirate all of a sudden, you know? And I, lad, you know, where's your parrot? <laughs> and I looked at this man, and he said, Come with me, son, we're going to AA. And I thought, My God. And that man took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1975. And with all due respect to you, Dean, I look back 28 years, and you know what I Just laid my first eyes on back then. Something that we talk about very rarely, but was my first trusted servant. He was my first trusted servant. Now, now what would make Alex my first trust? He had no business being there. He had no business being there. He wasn't a counselor. He wasn't a probation officer. He wasn't uh, a... anything that had to do with the law, he was a refinery worker and he just got the worst news of his life. And His wife was dying immediately of a terminal disease. And he knew she was in good hands, but he knew he wasn't. But you see, somewhere in his home group, somewhere in his little book study, somewhere in his little discussion meeting, somewhere in his speaker meeting, that man was able to sit quietly and grasp and develop a manner of living that taught him this. Practical experience tells us that nothing will ensure immunity from drinking than intensive work with other alcoholics, that this works when other activities failed. And that shot through his head and he turned that little car around and he headed toward that courthouse and he talked to Judge Foy and Judge Fallingsworth and they said, I think we got a guy for you. And that man took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was ready for a long ride up north and maybe some lunch. (laughs) He took me to a 15-minute car ride to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in that car, he nailed me. And I was to be nailed ever since. And he's told me this. He says, son, I know you've had a tough life and you feel different. If there is anything that levels this playing field right here and now, is that we've all felt different. No matter where we were, if we be alcoholic, no matter what group we were around, it was a matter of time. We either walked in feeling different or we eventually began to feel different. Even in AA. And he said, Son, I know you've had a tough life and you feel different, and I can't wait for you to meet these people. And he said, Larry, he says, I can't wait for you to meet these folks, son. He says, an alcoholics anonymous, the more different you feel, the more qualified you are. <laughs> And that guy took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he rolled up to this dingy, stinky, smelly, rotten old Alano Club, the Torrance Lamita Alano Club. Now, I'd never seen that word before in my life. What the hell's an Alano? I thought it was some type of animal, like an elk or a moose, you know, watch for crossing Alanos or something, you know. And he introduced me to all these Alanos, and there they were walking around, you know. All the Alanos at the Alano Club. And he started introducing me to all these people in AA. Indian Genie and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Singing Sam and Serenity Sam and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray. Dancing Pete, Whistling Butt, all these other people. I said, I said my God, I just left a group of people like this, you know. And little Moose come running over across the club. Hi, honey, my name is Moose and I'm expecting a miracle. I said, "I bet you are, man." I said, "I'm not it, you know." Some transvestite came out of the card room. He circled me like a helicopter in L.A. He finally landed, come walking over to me in his new muumuu. You know, he said, "I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting." I said, "I don't think so, big fella, you know." Not till I get a year, anyway, you know. I I told Alex, my God, that guy's got big feet, man, you know. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was the biggest lie that I've ever told myself. I wasn't going in and out of AA. I did what I'd done my entire life. I did what I did every other place I went to. I sat in a room waiting for somebody to do something for me. I sat in a room waiting for somebody to do something to me. One more time, I had the handout at your expense. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, what you're waiting to be done to you, God's waiting to do through you. And the only thing that I can promise you if you're new is to be prepared to be divinely inconvenienced for the rest of your damn life. You know? (laughs) Because there ain't nothing about anything that's going to be to your liking that's worth any hoot anyway, you know what I mean? We do the uncomfortable to get comfortable here. I didn't wake up four days ago going, yippee, I get to go to wherever in the hell I am, uh, you know? (laughs) You know? Watch these two fight all night, you know what I I mean? No, I don't want to talk. Yeah, I want, you know. You know? But what happens to Alcoholics Anonymous is that everything is after a fact here. I'm a something for nothing guy. Give me that pint, I'll pay you later. My whole life has been operated about that. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, you took the only decent thing I brought to you, and I didn't bring you much, but you took the only decent thing I had, and that was my feet, and you trained my feet. You gave me a routine of meetings to go to. You gave me a series of meetings to go to today. I live in my routine. There's a principle in Alcoholics Anonymous that doesn't talk about anymore, and it's the most divine thing we have for the alcoholic of my type who has no faith, no hope, nothing but desperation. It's called consistency. There's nothing more promising than a consistent man. You show me a guy who just shows up no matter what. No matter what. See, this is a this is an all-for-nothing thing for me. I don't have some social disease. That last paragraph in the first step in the 12 and 12 said, under the lash of alcoholism, we stood ready to do anything. And we will always have alcoholism. And I always want to be ready to serve you. These 12 steps that we have, they're not preparing you to get things. They're preparing you to go to work. When I take that third step prayer, it ain't, oh, please help me, I got a pimple and no job. That third step is, my Father God, I'm ready to go to work. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Not that. You have something else. You know what I mean? (laughs) And what I did is I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, I, and like I said, that was the biggest lie that I told myself because I hadn't touched Alcoholics Anonymous. And more important, I hadn't touched the people. I keep that safe distance of misery for myself. And on May 2nd, 1982, I'm running around Skid Row over there in Wilmington, which ain't new. That's where I'm hoping I would die. I kept coming too. And on May second, eighty-two, I'm looking in this Woolworth window, and there's nothing but 120 pounds of filth. And he's sober. He's got my hair down to my shoulder. I've got my drinking mud on, and I'm just gazing with my yellow eyes and my pitiful uselessness. And I looked into this reflection, and I hadn't done that in a long, long time. And I said, my God, whatever happened to my dreams. And I did what I always did when I wind up like that. I panhandled some money and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. From 1975 to 1982, every time I called Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody from central office would come and get me. And they were always clean and they were sharp. That's why I'm wearing a tie tonight. Because you folks taught me how to get You taught me to have respect for the thing that's saving my life. And that if I take the things in Alcoholics Anonymous and bring them into my home and my personal life, that great things will happen to guys like me. My sponsor told me, Larry, seek ye first the kingdom, son. And I didn't know what Papa was talking about. He always told me, seek ye first the kingdom. And it took me a long time to realize what he was talking about. Put everything into your sobriety, Larry, and let the rest of your life take care of itself. Make your primary purpose this way of life and become useful to this thing. And the rest of your life will take care of itself. You see that guy standing in that dry cleaners. You see that kid standing in that dry cleaners using his mom time and time and time again. I'm here to share with you if you're new as a result of the sixth and seventh step and strong sponsorship. That if you can find the key, and you can find that thing that keeps you from being useful to us, you will find the key to life. You find that thing that keeps you from serving us at any level, you will find the key to life. Those two guys and that man on the bed, they are sharing their experience, strength, and hope. And do you think they're telling that guy on the bed, looks like you got to do some more overtime? Looks like you need to go get some collagen. No, that's not what they were all about. See, I came here and I would come to these meetings and I would see guys like me and they would come and get sober and they would get jobs and they would get apartments and they would get cars and they would get people to dance with. And to the untrained eye, it looks like the treatment for alcoholism is normal living and nothing could be further from the truth. You don't have to come here to get those things. It just takes hard work and good fortune. But the key to my solution to my illness and my spiritual malady will always be the perpetuation of this gift. Me, you, and that book. Me, you, and that book and carrying this message to the alcoholic who still suffers. The most beautiful story in that book is Bill. How he's laying out in that town's hospital, and that guy comes and visits him, and he talks about a couple things that he needs him to do, and he talks about his defects of character, and his, some of his wrongs, and they did some things in that bed, and then Bill had this experience that we all know about, and you know what his first reaction to that experience was? I gotta spread, I gotta talk to another alcoholic. His first thought, you know what my first thought would have been? I gotta get out of this hospital. You know what I mean? But let me ask you this. What type of experience would it be for an alcoholic of my type that didn't include carrying the message? What type of experience would that be that didn't include perpetuating? What would that be? I, at five years sober, it finally hit me. I'm in the back of my car and me and Johnny and Clancy are driving and I'm in the back seat and we're going to Oceanside and I'm in the back seat of this car and these guys are laughing and having a ball and I'm thinking, i got to get out of this car. These guys are going to kill me. You know what I mean? And what dawned on me is i got to get guys in my car. I've got to be toting these guys around in the back seat. I talked in Wisconsin not too long ago and this lady says, how do you... how do you shut the voices off in your head? I said, put two live ones in your car. You know what I mean? You don't got to worry about a thing, man. You know? But like I said, every time I called you, Alcoholics Anonymous, you people would always come and get me, and you were clean and you were sharp. And you asked the only thing, are you ready to go to meeting, lad? And I would come to your meetings. And on May 2nd, 1982, I checked into that mission and I made a call. I sang for my beans and I let him save me and I made that call and who did I get I got this Montana cowboy who'd been coming and getting me for years every time I called him Don Don Adamson I love that man so much I finally called Don and I said Don this is Larry I'm down at the mission I'm ready to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous would you come and get me and he told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life he said no He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. Why don't you get your rusty rear down here yourself? I'm tired of chasing after you. And he hung up. And I thought, my God, whatever happened to that AA love? You know, I I just heard it. And for the first time in my life, it was up to me to come to you. It was no longer necessary for the good people of Alcoholics Anonymous to be inconvenienced by my nonsense. And I was alone in this little water heater room over behind this little building, And I conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. I knew that there wouldn't be a thing in the world to keep me from drinking again. That there was nothing to stop me from drinking again. And I knew I was going to drink again. And I was as scared as I could be. And I was so scared and so afraid. And I knew right down to my toes that I didn't have anything within my grasp or knowledge that would keep me from going after that mad drunk again. And I was frightened out of my mind. And I ran from Wilmington to Torrance with my poopy pants and no hope, waddled up to this Orano club, and every step of the way, my head saying, you ain't going to make it. You ain't going to last a day. You're a loser. You've been here before. These people don't want you. You ain't going to make it. And I shut that head off. Because I could, couldn't wait to see that Montana cowboy. And I walked into that Alano club and I waddled up to that guy and I asked him something. I never asked a man in Alcoholics Anonymous. Timmy, I said, Don, would you be my sponsor? And that guy lit up like a chandelier for five minutes and then he lit into me for 20 minutes. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, gave me the wood, you know. And then he gave me the sponsored declaration of independence. And he told me this. He says, You make the effort... I make the effort you don't make the effort leave me alone kid I've got guys that want to stay sober and that man was my sponsor for two years and I love them and I love them today and I love him good and at two years sober I started becoming somebody everybody was telling me where I used to be and what I'm like now and I've decided I need no further work necessary my ego my personal ambition my what I want to be, my who I should be, my what i got to have. And my ego took over. And I'm running my own life. And at two years sober, a man came down to this club and told me what I was. He says, you're an AA pimp. You're a loser, Larry. You'll always be a loser. He says, there's a triangle in Alcoholics Anonymous, son. I hope you find it. And I followed that man. I followed that man to something that I hold dearly to me today. It's called a home group. I was never a part of a home group. And in that home group, I found my loving God. In that home group, I was able to recreate the atmosphere that was created to me. You new people wonder why we have all these jobs and meetings. Why do we set up the chairs? And why do we have people putting out the literature? And Why do we have people making the coffee? And it's simply this. So that when you're ready to come to our meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, we've created the only atmosphere known to mankind where a guy can sit and listen. And if he can identify to the alcoholic who is sharing, he will hear the sweet voice of a loving God for the first time in his life and it will come in the form of identification. And he'll think to himself, by golly, that's me. That's me. And the secrets of your life will be an open book. And then you'll meet people, as that guy talked, Eddie Rickenbacker, about all the people on that shipwrecked and how we're all on this raft trying to survive. That it ain't about color and money, property and prestige. It's about what we can do for our common welfare to keep this place open and alive and enthusiastic for that next gal and that next guy that comes through here. That's why I have a job in my home group. Not so that I could come out to Detroit and tell you, so that I can recreate that atmosphere that people did for me when I was new and I was able to say, you know what, maybe I can do it here. Maybe I can do it here. And I found in that loving home group of mine my my God. I found this God that I've been running from my entire life because he killed my little brother at six and I figured what kind of God creates you and kills you. And so I've turned myself off to any type of talk of God. And I found my loving God as I look out among you today. I don't ever need to get any bigger than my home group. My home group has the power to keep my ego small enough to be useful to you, and that's all I need to be. To be useful to you is my primary purpose. When I become too big for my home group of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will become useless. And then I will feel different. And then I will feel apart from, and then that insane idea of maybe this time it will be different will happen. And so my home group keeps me small enough to be useful, and I begin to sponsor people. And there is nothing like watching some goof that you've watched flop around, get up there and take a one-year cake. And you see the eyes. Damn it, that kid's going to get it. And you watch it. And then you watch him sponsoring people. Then you watch their lives flourish. I met my beautiful wife in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of those meetings that I didn't want to go to. I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going. All day I'm thinking, I'm not going. My sponsor called me, how you doing? I'm doing good and I ain't going. You know? (laughs) Jimmy cracked corn and I don't care, you know what I mean? What are you going to do about it? I ain't going and I'm feeling good about it. It's determined, I ain't going, I ain't going, I'm showering. I'm getting ready, and my head's saying I'm not going. I wind up at the meeting. Hi, my name's Larry. I'm an alcoholic, man. (laughs) Totally against my will. My feet were trained to be with you. And I talked at that meeting, and all the way through the talk, I locked eyes with this Nicaraguan lady. And I couldn't keep my eyes off her. And at the end of the meeting, we prayed, and I followed to her car to like a lost terrier. You (laughs) You know, I mean... She's trying to get into her car, and I keep talking, you know. And she says, uh, do you like to camp? She says, do you like the backpack? I says, I love it. <laughs> I never camped a day in my life, for God's sake, you know. I, I spent enough time out there, you know. And, but I figured anything to get in her tent, you know. And I, was, <laughs> I know I'm running a little long, and we want to get to the dance. and I want to wrap it up because it's been a long night but I tell you I live and breathe with the hope that I can see that lady one more time you taught me that you taught me that if I respect this thing that's saving my life that one of these days I'm going to respect the boss that's signing my check you taught me that if I have respect for the ladies and the, and the youngsters here in Alcoholics Anonymous, that one of these days I'm going to be able to teach a lady respect. And there will be no demanding. I won't have to yell and beat them around to prove my bravado and my, and my strength. And I don't have to validate my manhood by being a goof. That my manhood doesn't need to be validated. But me showing up with you does. that everything in my life will take place if I show up and be with you. And there's nothing finer than the love that I have for a woman in my life. And that I don't want to jeopardize that. The men in Alcoholics Anonymous told me, you don't have to act like that anymore. She found a safe place in me that I didn't know existed. Not too long ago, she lost her sponsor and her mom in the same year. And this wasn't too long ago. And we're laying in bed and she's crying. And I want to tell her what to do. I want to tell her how to handle it. I want to tell her what to read, what to do. And because of sponsorship. You know what you men told me? Why don't you give her a shoulder to cry on with no advice? She don't need your advice. She just needs a safe place to mourn. Can she find that within you? And I'm here to thank you for that because she found it. She found it right here. She found it on this shoulder that used to have needles stuck in it. She found it right here. She found it because I kept up and showing it to you. She found it because I was able to go through an inventory and get rid of some of these ghosts. And she found it even more so because I was willing to go and make amends to the people that I loved so much that I was so f- afraid that I ran away from it, and I knew that was my mother and father. And to make amends to these two people. To make amends to that old man that I couldn't stand because I felt so guilty. And for that guy to become my best friend. To watch that man whittle and die with cancer and him knowing that me and Rosie were taking care of him. To go over and see that man and every time I would see him, I would kiss him on the forehead. And every time I would leave, I would kiss him on the forehead and tell him, Daddy, I love you. Now, where would I get that from? I got this in rooms of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where day after day, week after week, at the end of the meeting, we hold hands. That day after day and week after week, people were sponsoring or taking cakes and, and were hugging and kissing. And we're talking about love all the time. And men are hugging men. And when it come time to show that man some affection, I could do it without feeling weird. Because I've been doing it with you for so many years. And I was able to kiss that man and tell him that I love him. Go fill out his bills. And I go in there and Dad had passed. And I was able to kiss him and close his eyes. And thank him so much for allowing me the privilege of being his son. So many things were obligations. And isn't it amazing how we cross that invisible line and these obligations become privileges. I am not here because of my blessings. And I have been blessed like we all have been blessed. But I don't want to be one of these guys that hangs himself with his great blessings and forgets to come back to the people that blessed him when no one else would. I don't ever want to forget who was here when there wasn't anybody else in my life. Two things have come natural to me my entire life. One was drinking and one was crying for God's help. Nobody had to tell me how to do that. They came from within here. And because of a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to live like an animal no more. That I can proudly say by God's grace... I am sober by a miracle called Alcoholics Anonymous. And just what is God's grace? It's nothing more than this compassion for the suffering that he's had. But it didn't become God's grace in my life till I started showing compassion for that new man that was suffering. And as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous' sponsorship, I can now say that by God's grace and a miracle called Alcoholics Anonymous, that I am living everything that you promised me that would happen. These steps aren't a threat. You work them, you can't keep the good things from happening to you. And if you knew, we haven't gotten here together just to fool you. (laughs) There is something powerful here that we hope you will tap into. We hope that you will get so busy serving Him that you can't help but find them. And it seems like to me, the more I serve Him, the clearer He becomes. And the less I serve Him, the more distant He seems. So it is my best interest to be in your hip pocket. It is my best interest to be with you as much as I can. Because that peace of mind that I have today is not an illusion. That peace of mind that I have today is a byproduct of a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous and its people. And I'm a stickler for evidence. And I never had a God. But I need to ask you this if you're new. Look around you. Look around you tonight. You see table after table and row after row of people who should be locked up, dead, or insane. And look at them tonight. They're happy, they're joyous, and they're free. And I don't need to see him. I don't need to hold his hand. I don't need to figure out what he looks like. All I need to do is keep coming back and playing in the evidence all night long. Thank you.